0: This is the first time I have been here and I'm very happy to be here. So thank you. Um, I, uh, I travel quite a lot and I spend time in different groups and have taught retreats in different places. And one of the things that's nice about being back on my home turf in California is to see how well established the Dhamma is here. Um, I don't know Gil very well, but what I know of him is, is that he's an excellent Dhamma teacher. And one of the virtues of having an excellent Dhamma teacher as a resident teacher is is that there's an enormous amount of goodness that uh, gathers around. So when I see the numbers of people and the facility and the support and how things are set up, I just have a lot of confidence um, in the roots and the way the Dhamma is unfolding. And so that makes me feel very happy, Uh, particularly since I might be coming back. (laughs) so um, there were two topics that were suggested I talk about this morning one was Pratichi Samapada and the other was renunciation and uh, my brain, I don't know if I could manage Pratichi Samapada quite as well as I'd be able to manage renunciation, so I'll start with that and, uh, and we'll see how the time goes and if I have a little bit of time at the end I might give a Slightly brain-free version of Patichu because that would be about as much as I might be able to manage today. Nupaccha <coughs> hmm. is known as saying, uh, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And so when we examine this in terms of our own personal lives, it's an interesting reflection of what that means. So when we look at letting go a little, what might that mean? For each of us in our lives, in this contemporary world. And it's an often uh, a worthwhile reflection, particularly in light of the trouble that the planet is in at the moment, and the amount of resources it takes to uh, have heat and clothing and drive cars and do things, and, you know, just looking at the cause and effect relationship of how food comes into being and all of that. And then we look at our own individual wants and needs, and uh, we see that there definitely is a satisfaction that comes from getting what we want. But there's also a danger in that as well. And the danger that comes from getting what we want is that we tend to forget that Ultimately, the happiness is not lasting. And so when we explore our own personal lifestyles and own uh, things that we have and all the rest of that, when we look at it in terms of the conditions that give rise for these things, then there's an interesting uh, reflection that we don't normally consider when we just are considering what is it that I want and whether or not I might have enough money to have it. It's sweet. Um, it, Chitters, which is where I live. I live at Chitters Buddhist Monastery and Ajahn lives in Amravati Buddhist Monastery. And Chitters Buddhist Monastery has a, a, a forest of I think about 120 acres of land and some of that is chestnut coppice. And the chestnut coppice is there um, partially to support the wood burning stoves that we have for the main monastery, which includes the the main buildings and the Dhamma Hall. So some of these very high tech boilers were researched and purchased that are low emission and high efficiency. And so we we have wood, which is a renewable resource. We have our own wood and uh, we use the wood to heat the buildings. One of the monks, was looking after the amount of wood that was being used. And there's inevitably a question about how hot do you keep the buildings? Because, you know, the more you keep them, the more wood it takes. So this monk was uh, concerned because the amount of wood that was being used was more than he thought the community had allocated. So he said, wood doesn't grow on trees, you know. (laughs) And it doesn't. (laughs) It is the stuff that trees are made of, but it doesn't grow on them. And so when we look at, even when we have a renewable resource like wood, we have a forest that has ample wood, and yet there's a tremendous amount of effort that takes to, to cut the wood, to stack the wood, to move the wood, to relocate the wood, to restack the wood, to chop it up to... You know, it's like there are quite a few uh, causes and conditions that give rise to being able to heat the house, even when the supply is something that is a renewable resource and the, and the boiler is designed to be as efficient as possible. So that kind of humor I really love. But it actually is helpful to consider in that way, you know. Um, it's worthwhile taking a look at that. So when we begin to examine our lives in terms of these simple things about what we use for requisites and how we heat our houses and the amount of clothes we have and the way we uh, take care of our needs for food and water and the effects that that has and, and how much we're willing to let go of wanting around these things and begin to move more in terms of What's appropriate uh, for maintaining our basic needs and doing it with the least consequences, harmful consequences as possible? You know, how many pairs of shoes do I really need? You know, how many times do I really need to buy new clothing? You know, how many times do I need to clean the house with... um, with uh, solvents which are harmful in the water, you know. And are there other ways of looking at it? So the initial response is to follow one's uh, habitual patterns and to get what one wants. And yet, when we consider this in, a, in another way, we're able to reflect that yes, there is an initial gratification with doing that. And yet, the the overall picture is that those kinds of happinesses are not long-lasting. And we can see that so that when we begin to contemplate in a way, well, what is longer lasting, then we'll be able to sacrifice uh, short term wants for longer term values. Now, we were over at somebody's house the other day in Santissica, who had made this most wonderful blueberry pie. And the way it was is that we were sitting outside eating out of our alms bowls and And the blueberry pie was upstairs and was going to come downstairs. So the blueberry pie on plates with ice cream came downstairs. And we were waiting for all of the people to gather until we could eat it. And I was sitting looking at this pie. And I was noticing the kind of reactive instincts, which was that everything was saying, don't wait. (laughs) (laughs) This looks really delicious. And it looks delicious right now. And yet there was also something else that was able to register, okay, this is desire, desire feels this way, and it is possible to manage this, you know. It won't be life-threatening if I actually hang out and wait with all of this. And so I did, I waited, and everyone came down and we shared it together. But it was nice to joke about the fact that it was hard to wait, yeah. So that when we're confronted with simple desires like that and the natural habitual response that what happens when we want something and we are needing to delay our response and having it, it causes a certain kind of energetic experience in the body that you have to manage. And yet when you are able to manage it, when I was able to manage it, I enjoyed the company of having everyone join us. It was a greater joy than having wolfed down the blueberry pie before everyone got there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know. So we can see that the, the delayed reaction to having our needs met can also be the consequence around deeper joys being met. So when we let go a little, we have a little bit of peace. When you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace now for me this relates to our whole emotional responses not just the things that we are wanting but the whole world of 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 anger and desire and the whole emotional habitual response to these patterns and so for most of us when we have anger or desire arising There isn't only the initial uh, wisdom factor, which is saying, let's hold out on this. There's also the judgment factor, which judges and criticizes and condemns and blames. and, And when we do that to ourselves, as much as we are doing that outside. And so when we're able to look at the reactive mechanisms around our emotional responses and see them in awareness and know them for what they are and not follow them, then we're able to come into a more immediate relationship with our whole internal world. And when we're able to do that, there's a much deeper sense of peace. Okay? So I don't know what it's like for you, um, but for me, there's certain things that I have in my own uh, experience which are challenging. You know, sadness, surprisingly enough, is challenging. I was brought up in a culture that really likes extroverted, bright, happy people. And just being sad is scary because it goes against the training or the conditioning about somehow what's okay. And so the reactive mechanisms that I've had to decondition is the stuff that doesn't allow these basic things into conscious awareness and suppresses them out of awareness before that I can even know that they're happening. And when I have been able to see these mechanisms and then be able to just be with the sadness itself and allow it to do what it needs to do, stay for as long as it stays, and then release itself, the result is, surprisingly enough, is a much deeper sense of peace than when I'm not allowing it into conscious awareness in the first place. So when we let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. When we let go of our habitual responses to our emotional reactions, there is a lot of peace. Now, when we let go completely, there's complete peace. So what is that all about? You know, that's not a free fall into an utter chaos. Letting go completely is letting go of any place where we have a foothold in me or mine a belief where we have an idea about how things should be or constructing things in terms of right and wrong and good and bad and this and that and here and there any register in the world of duality any foothold in the world of duality is going to end up with suffering as a result even if it's the very uh, refined suffering that happens from just being conscious of conditioned existence. And so when we let go completely, when we're able to see that sense of I arising for what it is, when we're able to see our values, our judgments, our views, our rightnessing and wrongnessing for what it is, when we're able to see the way we separate this and that and here and there and black and white and good and bad for what it is, when we are able to abide in a groundlessness that has no me or my as foundation, then in that experience there is possibility of complete peace. The challenge is, is is that most of us, even though if I passed out a piece of paper, would most likely sign that they're quite happy to be enlightened. And we could all collect the papers and see people's signatures, but faced with the reality of this degree of letting go, most people would run as fast and as far and as hard as they could go in the opposite direction. Because it is so deeply... Um, uncomfortable not to be someone. And even when we aren't being someone who's suffering, that is so unstabilizing that most of the time we prefer to be somebody who's suffering than not to be someone at all. And so this ability of learning how to rest in this groundlessness of awareness without becoming anything, anyone, even anyone who is suffering, is part of what is needed to be cultivated in order that we experience the profound peace that this brings If we let go a little, we have a little bit of peace. If we let go a lot, we have a lot of peace. If we let go completely, there is complete peace. So it leaves us with an interesting question. What do we want? What's important? What's worthwhile? spending our lives doing, cultivating. Let me see if I can try tying this into Paticci Samuppada, dependent origination. Sometimes it's a a lucky day when I'm virtually brain dead. (laughs) Because if I can explain it when I don't have much brains that are functioning, it often means that it's easier to understand. Patici Samapada, as I'm sure you've all heard, is the cycle of dependent origination. And the cycle of dependent origination is the description of how the whole cycle of suffering comes into being. And the different links that support that. And of the various different teachings in the Buddhist uh, canon from the Lord Buddha himself, This teaching of dependent origination is one of the teachings that delineates Buddhism from all the other teachings that are uh, available in the world. It makes it Buddhist, if you were. And uh, because it's a central teaching, it's important to understand it. But it's not at all easy to understand. And some of the terms are complex and the concepts, some of the complex are not uh, in, uh, intuitive or straightforward. But the general principle is, is, is not uh, necessarily that difficult to see. We can see that the way we are conditioned is going to determine the way we experience things. So I would imagine everyone can relate to that as a pretty basic sense of truth, right? So if, if we're used to this as a glass for water, then that's a quite comfortable experience when I'm drinking water out of it. But this also could be used as a vase for flowers Okay. now there's nothing moral or immoral about changing it from being a glass to a vase of flowers. But if this were used as a glass of flowers regularly, it's often the case when the flowers are there for the while, the water gets a little bit stagnant. The glass gets covered with some kind of slime. You don't want to use it as a glass to drink out of. So this is a vase and used for flowers. It's most likely not going to be a water glass. Because they have different uses and they might be slightly conflicting in their uh, purposes, right? But if somebody had the experience, now in either case, whether this is a vase or whether this is a glass of water, the experience is maybe pleasant, you know, nothing too distressing, yeah. But if you had the experience of somebody taking this glass and smashing somebody over the head that you loved so badly that they had to go to the hospital, then it's possible when you saw this shape, your whole system would go into a fear response because your association with this was an act of violence. Now, the glass itself didn't have anything to do with it, but our association with the glass is based on the way that it was used. And when we're habitually used to something or when something very traumatic happens, our minds imprint around the emotional response connected to that visual contact. Okay? So then when you see this, your whole system might go into a complete panic because this then is 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 a weapon of violence for you and is related to a disturbing event connected to somebody being uh, brutally harmed, okay? But there's nothing inherent in the glass that makes it either a glass for water or a vase or a weapon. It's the way that it's used, okay? So when we see the way that works in our own systems, we can begin to tweak this to our own advantage, It doesn't take a lot of spiritual genius to like people that we like and to dis people that we dislike. I mean, most every person in the whole world can manage that rather well. We're really good at that. And even animals can do that really well, you know. People who are kind to animals get loving and kind response, and people who are not kind to animals do not get a loving and kind response. Animals respond the same, okay where it's tricky is to understand the mechanisms of how these perceptions are formed and learn how to work with perception in a way where we can maximize ending of suffering and minimize suffering. Now, as reflective human beings, one of the things that we have is the capacity to choose where we place our attention. And that choice is not a choice that anyone can take away from us. So even if all of us were somehow kidnapped and held at ransom and put in a very small room and not given much food or water, we still would have within us the capacity to choose where we place our attention. And we can allow our attention go to the things that are terrifying about the experience. Or we can go to the things that are uh, friendly about the experience, the way people are helping each other. We can go to the things that are neutral about the experience, just the, the weight of the cloth on our skins. And we have within us the capacity to make those choices. What is often the case is is that we are driven by our predominant emotional reactive response and we lose sight of these choices. So what's happening with the cycle of dependent origination is showing us that when we have a certain contact and then there is perception and then there is the thoughts that form around these perceptions. These thoughts that form around these perceptions are going condition, the wanting response or the not wanting response how we relate to that is going to depend what happens next so if we can see for example you know that this is a glass this is a glass and I can see the thought this is a glass of water okay? and I can see it as a thought arising in my mind, there's a choice to relate to it as a glass of water But I'm not bound to relating it to as a glass of water. I can see that it can be changing from this to a vase, and there isn't any kind of anxiety. All right? Now, if I was in that situation of seeing this being used as a weapon, and I see this glass again, and this huge emotional response of fear and terror and panic sets in, that I'm able to see I am looking at a glass I see a glass, and as I see the glass, there's this fear response, and I can feel the fear arising as I'm looking at the glass and staying with the fear. Then we can dismantle the reactive mechanisms that accumulate around perceptions to allow another way of being with what it is that we're experiencing. Until eventually we can just see that there isn't anything in this glass that we need to be frightened of. Because the glass actually wasn't the sum total of what was causing the problem. It was the way the glass was used. Can you see that? Yeah. Now the reason why this is important to understand is because when we are looking at this second, the first, second, and third levels of letting go, you let go a little, you have a little peace, you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace, and you let go completely, you have complete peace. When we are able to see the things that we are grabbing hold of, and see the way we are relating to them, and begin to watch this whole reactive mechanism with clarity then in that clarity, there is the possibility of not following the old patterns of wanting and not wanting. And as we are not following the old patterns of wanting and not wanting, something else emerges. We can do appropriate things in terms of conservation in our house. We can learn to simplify and make choices that are congruent with our values. We can learn to have an appropriate response to our emotional reactions rather than perpetuating more suffering in the way that we're related to our emotions. We can watch the arising and the formation of the sense of I. We can watch the way we take birth in the way we locate ourselves through our memories, through our successes, through our positioning, through our relationships, through our wounds, through our aspirations. And as we are able to see all of this arising in conscious awareness, we can watch it like a cloud that moves through the sky. And as it moves through the sky, and there's just resting in that which knows clouds, then we're not stuck by the things that we know. And in not being stuck, there is a possibility of resting in something which is deeply and profoundly peaceful. So the cycle of dependent origination and understanding how that arises and ceases is the pathway to letting go a little. Is the pathway letting go a lot and is the pathway to letting go completely so I would like to offer this for reflection now and change the floor and invite questions Thank you.
1: I find the idea of renunciation very delightful although at the moment I don't want to be a nun but um, I am conflicted around, and I guess my question would be, can you compare what kind of renunciation either of you experienced prior to being a nun compared to what it is as a monastic and any offerings for how to lay people really renunciate? <laughs>
0: Well, I can speak from my own experience, and we can see if others here would like to share their experience up up front here. (laughs) But I was very proud of my practice. I thought I had a really together practice when I went to the monastery. In fact, I was so convinced I had a together practice that I was determined to teach them all how to practice, (laughs) which went down a treat, I can tell you. And I was very surprised at how much I suffered when I got there. Um, And one of the reasons why I suffered a lot was obviously because there was quite a lot of arrogance that was there that I wasn't able to see. But also because I was surprised by the ways in which I had deluded myself in a situation where you have so much choice. So we can think that we're letting go. We can think that we're doing things from a place of whatever. But when you're faced with not having those same choices, I was surprised at how challenging it was. Now, the interesting thing was, is is that not being able to eat blueberry pie wasn't the big one, you know, and not having hair wasn't the big one. You know, not going to help yourself in the refrigerator, that wasn't the big one. For me, the challenging things was about autonomy, um, my opinions. And my own sense of the way I wanted to practice. I got a lot of nourishment out of being in nature, being able to go backpacking alone and just or not even alone. But I used to spend my favorite thing to do was to go get lost in Santa Cruz Mountains, you know, on my bike. And to spend the rest of the day trying to find out where I was, and I would take my bike over barbed wire fences and through ravines and get scratched to smithereens and covered in poison oak, and I'd come back happy as a lark, you know? The sense of just being in nature and being not able to locate myself physically or geographically did something that was so deeply refreshing. And then for the first many, many years of being a nun, we could not leave the boundary of the monastery property without another person. Okay? So those kinds of things took a lot of letting go, and I didn't realize how hard they were until years later when we decided that it wasn't necessary to be so strict about things like that. It wasn't serving a useful purpose. So I guess this, for me this is to say is this is that the, 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 for me there was a difference and yet everyone practices as best as they can where they're at and it doesn't help one of the ways in which a monastic community can undermine a lay community is when the perception is, is that the monastic way of practicing is best because if the monastic way of practicing is best there are three monastics up here that, what does that mean for everybody else that's here so, immediately, if you have a best, then you have a less best. And anytime there's an undermining of your practice in any kind of a way, it's not beneficial. So, if we do that, that's not helpful. What is helpful is to say, all right, this is an example of people who live with simplicity, who live with uh, a minimal. Who live with their needs getting met, but they don't use the clothes and food and shelter in order to satisfy their emotional needs. Is there something that we can use or learn from that in a way which is relevant for us? Does that help answer your question?: Very much, thank you. Yeah. Would either of you like to share about what it's like being a monastic and how different it is from being a lay person?. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the idea of pronunciation I just love it Uh, I was very excited by it and uh, that's uh, starting with (laughs) 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 Uh, Gandhi community I don't know you certainly know about Gandhi life and non-violence so I was very active on that so that was my meaning I want to give to my life, is to be in a society, not to be, uh, become religious. So When that happened, that was beyond my control. That was a great renunciation for me, because I didn't want, for me, that mean separating myself from the world. I didn't understand actually, it was not that, but to put on a robe, means, you know, you have set up a special place and you are different. That was very difficult for me. So that was very challenging. And uh, what I realized also coming to the monastic about it, uh, I was having a lot of fear, like right now. <laughs> so, um, mm. my commitment for life is to uh, be free from fear. And that means, you know, about all my beliefs I have to be letting go and change. And the best way I can do that is to be with people. And monastic life is a very, very challenging that because you have been, in your face and telling you who you are. And I said, this is what I want. I said, I'm prepared to die, to do anything, to to be free from fear. So that's what I'm here now. (laughs) 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 And I'm very grateful, and it does work. So renunciation about. Does not about food or clothing or about to be afraid to live with people in the sense of sharing. I love that. I'm not a person who's going to retire in a grotto or a forest or whatever. I love to be with people. I love to be um, helping people and, and have fun with it also, not just suffering. And uh, the so the renunciation is about what well, I, I lost.
3: Thank you very much. I am an engineer and a pilot. I have been discussing life changes with some of my friends who are engineers and or pilots. There's the idea in flying of bingo, the point of no return at which time the airplane cannot turn around and safely return to its point of origin we decided that to go beyond the point of bingo was careless and irresponsible. And we started discussing how much we were willing to uproot our careers. Does the path of spiritual life have a similar construct, a point of no return, beyond which one becomes fearful of being not inspired, but simply careless?
0: Beautiful question. And uh, speaking from my own experience, I would definitely say it has to. It does. It does do that. And I think one of the things that happens when one first uh, genuinely sees the Dhamma, when one's eye and one's body and one's experience is uh, congruent and conversant with the realization of the Dhamma. It's no longer possible to go back and believe what you believed before. You can't do it. Try as you might. I remember fantasizing, wouldn't it be nice if I could just sit in front of a television and watch football and drink beer and stuff my face with pretzels? (laughs) That somehow unconsciousness would be a, a better option than the challenge of waking up. And yet... These fantasies were fantasies and I was not able or didn't really have any interest. It was just, you know, an idea of something that would be different from what I was doing. So in terms of the path of awakening, the first access to insight, the first deep direct penetration of the Dhamma, uh, the uprooting of uh, doubt, the uprooting of Seeing rituals as the thing that's going to do it for you, the, the first uprooting of, of personality view, where you take yourself to be a permanent and existing entity, has within it consequences. You can't go back. Yeah, you can't go back. But the not going back is not perilous in the sense that we are then in danger of... of um, some kind of harm happening to us, but the opposite is true. We're no longer in danger of kind of completely losing it and ending up in, in uh, doing things like grossly breaking precepts or even breaking the five precepts at all. Or, you know, in the kind of cosmology terms of ending up in a, in a, in a lower rebirth. But in terms of, if we don't have a, a concept of higher and lower realms and rebirth and all the rest of that, what we can see, and I think probably each one of us can testify, that there is a point after which you can't go back and pretend you don't know. So can I just see hands of people who have experienced going beyond a point beyond which you can't go back and pretend you don't know? Okay. So you will know the answer to your own question, really. Yeah. Yes, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that um, we all struggle with, or I certainly do, is the concept of control and letting go of control and being in situations where um, letting go of, of control of our lives or, or our work or our children or, or whatever it is, and the, the relationship between that and um, responsibility. I'm wondering if you could just speak on that.
0: That's also a good question and also essential to the same theme because we have a feeling that if we're not in control, we are irresponsible. And so, responsibility is the ability to respond, okay? Understanding is the ability to stand under. Control is the mechanism of fixing a way things are supposed to... um, uh, the outcome of something, okay? So control is not a responsibility, it's a manipulation. One has an idea about outcome and one is manipulating in order to get outcome to be according to one's idea. A responsibility is to bring together the conditions that are necessary in order for uh, intelligence and safety and needs to be met without manipulating for an outcome. So in order to be able to respond, you need to let go of control. If you are holding on to control, then you're invested in an outcome, and being invested in an outcome by definition will limit your capacity to respond. So there's this funny paradox between love and attachment and commitment. The more attachment there is, the less capacity for commitment. Because the more attachment there is, the more invested one is in a particular outcome. The less one is able to see the journey through no matter what. The more love there is without attachment, the more commitment there is. Because when there is love, then there is the possibility of seeing something through no matter what the outcome no matter what the outcome, is an expression of commitment. So love and attachment in these two ways have opposing effects on the capacity to be committed because they're inversely proportional to one's capacity to respond. The more attachment, the less ability there is to respond. The less attachment, the more ability there is to respond. The more love, the more ability there is to respond, and the more commitment. Go
1: ahead. I have a question regarding your travels and so forth. Um, When you're abroad, or maybe even here, do you find that there's um, an attitude in the Buddhist community that women are less than, that being a woman monk is less than being a male monk?
0: How many hours do we have? (laughs) This question is very dependent on where you are. It's not a question that is uh, innate in a group of people. It's dependent on where you are. So traveling in the States, one of the pleasures of traveling in the States is, is that I don't experience that difference, you know. And yet sometimes there are situations where we find if we're teaching, team teaching with monks, there's this incredible adoration of the monks, and somehow we all of a sudden become invisible again. So this teaching trip, Ajahn Upek and I have been teaching together, and being teaching together, all that we are receiving is people's appreciation for what we're doing. But some of the challenges that nuns have had team teaching with monks is that there's this overemphasis on what they're offering, the monks, And then the nuns, all of a sudden, they're teaching but they've become invisible. So it depends, really, on the context and the environment and all the rest of that and how things get set up. This woman had a question.
1: Um, I'm very new at all of this, and this may sound very naive, but I have a question about um, the kind of, I don't even have the the word for it, the the reframing the... um, Example you gave of the, the, the glass that had become the traumatic instrument and being able to have the power within to re objectify that. And I'm wondering whether you feel there are ever any kinds of limitations. I'm thinking of the kind of trauma that, um, you know, the post traumatic stress kind of syndrome or the kinds of things that can happen to children as growing up. Were there neurophysiologically, there are restrictions on some people to be able to, in fact, reorganize in the way that you're describing to be free of that kind of attachment and interpretation of some kinds of stimuli.
0: There are, and, and, and what we find is, is that if things happen to children when they're too young, you know, um, certain kinds of traumatic events happen to children when they're too young. It's like it's hardwired in their nervous system. And basically their nervous system has to dismantle to that age and remantle with a new framework of kind of love and safety in order to have the capacity to, to get beyond that. So when certain kinds of traumatic things happen at an early enough age, It's not that it's impossible, but the kind of dismantling that's needed in order to dislodge that conditioning is certainly not insignificant, yeah.
4: Um, Is that on on what you said on uh, uh, dependent origination and suffering a little and suffering uh, somewhat or getting some relief, getting a lot of relief and getting total peace? Um, there's, a, there's a kind of magnetic attraction that I feel for the old habits that make it really difficult for me to sometimes see um, how I can release my suffering. Uh, for example, uh, a person at work who's incredibly difficult and it's not just me that thinks that, you know, I, I get this validation. Other people think this person's difficult too. And so I'm merrily going along saying, boy, wouldn't the world be better if this person wasn't so difficult? And then I realize that she's done something really kind to me, or there's different aspects to her that I haven't been taking into account. So my perspective hasn't been correct, totally. Mm -hmm. And so I go to work and I find out that I can, in fact, be quite positive with her. And not only am I positive with her, I have now stopped that pattern, but I am i have a kind of loneliness or grief for the old patterns. I was more comfortable having this validation from these other people that the world ought to be different and this woman ought to be different. But the amazing thing is that once I have been able to accomplish that a little bit or have been able to move like that, is that the whole rest of the day has a different tone and flavor to it, too, and I'm more open to many things in the universe that I would have missed. So I wonder if you can say something about that magnetic attraction to our old egoic patterns that that we miss. Actually, we have a kind of love affair with them, it seems.
2: (laughs) Well, I have a very good experience about that. You know, um, I'm a person who likes to experiment. I have a lot of fear, but I like to take a lot of challenge. And for the last 20 years, I did a lot of work and fasting. Okay, so. yeah. And uh, the other kind of thing, you know, I go to the forest in Thailand and uh, challenging myself with people and with teaching. I started very young to, to expose myself. And uh, so after 20 years, the last years, I... Uh, something happened. Uh, we have a winter retreat where we have three months, you know, we maximum months and not meditate And I uh, always uh, take uh, some special thing to do. I always have, uh, want to challenge the mind to re- reach out and stretch it to this limit. And so I decided not to sleep uh, at all. And the <laughs> and rest afternoon, but uh, all night, you know, meditating. And uh, the last the first three days was very good you know mm-hmm. challenging you know, the fourth that I said I'm going to quit I could not I mean all my body and mind say this is not I'm not going to allow you to do that but then I said was prepared to let go and so said no I'm not and I, I reached out and I, I could break through it mm-hmm. so I have a wonderful month of actually doing that and then suddenly in the end of that I suddenly experienced a lot of grief and I really cannot understand what happened. I just crashed down and crying, and crying, 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 and cried and cried. And suddenly I realized, you know, you have to stop doing. Enlightenment is not about doing, enlightenment is stopping doing. I'm still a doer. I'm still wanting to reach something. I want to get something. So until we don't. We do that. You know, if I improve myself and you know, I'm going to get better, I'm going to get enlightenment. For few years, it's good. We do have to do that, actually. We have a lot to purify. But there is a point where we have to stop to be as a doer. And I'm still sometimes drifting about it. But I, I recognize now. So I said, okay, stop to be the doer. So I wish you well. <laughs>
0: Well, we're at 11 o'clock now, so we're going to need to wind up. But I just want to check um, with what you brought up, you know, this habit of, of uh, if there's a grief in letting go or even of harmful patterns, that one of the things, as Ajahn upeka just mentioned, our practice is about is learning how to grieve. Because as we let go, even if we're letting go of things which are harmful, there's grief. Because so much of our identity is wrapped up in the things that we know. And even if the things that we know are built around things which are suffering, that place of knowing is so much more comfortable for us to be in than not knowing, that we tend to move there, even if we don't want to. So learning how to grieve, even the things that are going that are not what we want anymore, is part of what helps our hearts open and allows the whole thing to unfold in the right way. And I would like to echo Arjuna Pekha in wishing you well. Yeah.
4: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
3: dharmaseed.org slash donate.